on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it is going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Well, good morning. I'd like to add my welcome to, uh, to Daryl's. Great to see you here today. Um, normally we spend Sunday morning in the back room with the high school group, and uh, we've been following along in the sermon material. Now Amy introduced the idea of a, of a road trip, and I'm going to uh, kind of continue on with that idea, which is what we've been looking at as we've worked through these passages. Uh, before I, I get into it, uh, Daryl's asked me to say there will be question time after, so if you have questions, uh, you'll have a chance to um, uh, ask me um, as part of the meeting. Uh, so, yeah. Good? Okay. So, uh, we've been, as I said, looking at the same passage in the back room as you've been doing in this room, and we've been discussing the road trip that Jesus is taking. So, that means we've had to look at the geography of Palestine just a little bit. And we've had to talk about the different people that Jesus meets along the way. So we've talked about the fact that he's now traveling from Galilee, which is way up in the north, down to Jerusalem, which is in the south, which is in the south. And he goes to the east, which means he goes through the Decapolis and then through Perea. And now we're looking at some material that is only found in Luke, which is Jesus going through Perea as he gets down into those southern areas. When he gets far enough south, he'll be in the region of Jericho 
which is uh, where the land starts to rise. And from Jericho, he'll go up to the Temple Mount and that area around Jerusalem, which is a very high elevation. And along the way, he meets with different groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So we've talked about the different beliefs that these, these people had and how they were sort of in tension with one another and why they were in tension with Jesus. So uh, all this stuff makes up the road trip. And where is this going to end? Well, we know it's going to end in Jerusalem in just a few days. We're just a little bit away from Jerusalem now as Jesus is working his way south. It's going to be his last extended trip to Jerusalem because he's going to go to the cross. And along the way, he has to prepare people for that event. So I guess the question is, well, what do you do on a road trip? And the answer is, well, if you're anything like our family, you tell stories, you uh, talk with people, you play I Spy in the license plate game. Sometimes you even have conversations with, with fellow travelers. And this is pretty much what Jesus does on this road trip. Um, it's unfolding at a slower speed since they would all be on foot, but crowds are gathering. And uh, he has conversations with groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees as he goes along. And... Uh, we're going to look today at three sets of passages, three sort of separate incidents, and we're going to listen in then on three conversations. Jesus in the first one is talking to his disciples. It's as though they've loaded up the combi, and now they're heading south, and Jesus is, well, he's telling stories to those who are closest to him, and those who have, in a sense, bought into his ministry, and he's saying there's more that you need to know. And then, uh, in the second conversation, he's talking to the crowd, sort of the generic uh, group, as though he's stopped part the combi. He's having a conversation now with those who are also uh, going along the way. Now, why are they going along the way? Because the Passover is coming. And so, in theory, the whole nation is now moving toward Jerusalem. So there are huge crowds moving toward Jerusalem, and Jesus has something to say to those crowds. And in the third conversation, a small group kind of comes to the fore. It's as though somebody sticks their head in the combi and says, Hey, Jesus, have you heard what happened? And so there's a conversation that takes place between Jesus and this smaller group with us listening in and the disciples listening in as Jesus makes some uh, fairly important points. Now, in every one of these three conversations, as Jesus is getting ever closer to Jerusalem, the one theme that comes through in all of them is this, judgment. This isn't a popular subject these days, but Jesus has a lot to say about judgment. So, let's jump in. I'm on page 1,621 in the Bible that I picked up from the pews, and beginning at verse 49. So, uh, Jesus now talking primarily to the disciples, says, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is accomplished. Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. No, I tell you, but division. Now, why would we think that Jesus came to bring peace on earth? Well, because that's what Luke has been telling us all along. Of course we think he came to bring peace. Because at the start of the story, the angel comes along, and in chapter 2, verse 14, he says, peace on earth. So, well, that sort of sets our expectation. And then in chapter 7, there's talk about peace, and it's Jesus doing the talking. In chapter 8, there's more talk about peace. In chapter 10, Jesus says more about peace. So right through this gospel, he's been talking about the peace that comes from knowing him. But now he says, don't think that I've come to bring peace. Well, we wouldn't be surprised if they thought he did come to bring peace. But in each of those instances, peace is for those who respond to Jesus. Peace is for those who respond to Jesus' work for them. 
But there's more to the story, and as Jesus gets ever closer to his destination, namely Jerusalem, he has to clarify some things. The time is getting short, so it's important that his disciples absorb some really important truths. And the first one is this. Reconciliation means division. The work of Jesus offers his followers not peace but division because reconciliation means division. If I'm aligned with the roosters, then I might be alienated from those who are aligned with, is it the raiders? (laughs) And vice versa. If I align with labor, then I might be alienated from those who align with the greens or the liberals or uh, other parties. Now you would hope that none of that would matter all that much in terms of our relationships, but if I align with Christ... Well, for a first century Jew, that has consequences. And those consequences continue to this day. A Jewish friend of mine was ordained not long ago in an Anglican church. And his uncle told him, so they've finished what Hitler couldn't. That's got to hurt. We need to beware of those who say that following Jesus will be easy. Jesus can say that his burden is light and his yoke is easy when people try to uh, load up life with rules. He says, no, that's not the way to go. But following Jesus isn't being presented as easy. In fact, Jesus elsewhere can say narrow is the gate and difficult the way which leads to life. And Christians in many places understand this very well. Um, Some entries from Open Doors. I was in the back office a, uh, a while ago and I found this little booklet sitting on the desk and I started reading. It lists those countries where Christians are persecuted. And listen to some of the quotations that are in that book. Here's what a mother of two from Pakistan says, she was a former Muslim, she says, quote, we celebrate Easter knowing that at any time a suicide bomber can come and disrupt our service, our worship, our praying. Then I think, will it really be disrupted? Or will I be sent into the fullness of worship? Is dying disruption to worshiping God? Asked this mother from Pakistan. A woman from India says this, quote, Do not be afraid when persecution comes to you. It's part of the Christian life. It's a privilege to be persecuted. This woman was violently thrown out of her village when she became a Christian, and now she's at a Bible school to build up her faith and her understanding with the goal of going back to that village to one day teach those people about Christ. She suffered, but she wants to go back to the people who have treated her that way so that she can bring the Savior to them. Last one. Quotation from a Christian in North Korea, where there are, by the way, hundreds of thousands of followers of Jesus. Uh, The statement is this, quote, When my friend came to faith, he made a decision that one day he would die for Christ. Every Christian in North Korea has made that choice. I am convinced he can take the suffering because he constantly reminds himself of the joy that is set before him. I don't know of anybody in Sydney who would say, When I came to faith in Christ, I realized that I would one day die for him. But our brothers and sisters around the world face different realities. And Jesus is saying we need to be prepared for them. And in one sense, while we may not face those realities, true faith is defined by those possibilities and our openness to those possibilities. Jesus will be rejected. And in this, he will bear judgment. And now he's just days away from 
that as he bears the sins of the world. And only then can he do what he came to do. His death will bring salvation, ultimately the peace that humans long for. What we're meant to see here is that there is judgment coming. First, it will fall on Jesus, but it will impact you down to the most intimate relationships. And if you're getting this right, it will disrupt your lives. And so Jesus speaks of the most uh, intimate, the closest relationships that people have. The family will be divided by the coming of Jesus. One family divided against each other, three against two, two against three. They'll be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. The list takes in all those relationships. And you think, well, how is that even humanly possible? But the history of the world shows that those divisions are not all that unusual. Just look at the the short history of the the DDR, the former East German uh, Republic, where uh, we, we now know they had extensive records on their own family members. This is not something that's foreign to the human experience, but Jesus is saying... It's because of who I am that there will be this manner of division. Not because of politics, not because of fear, but because of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And so there will be division even into our homes. And some of you, and I don't say this casually, some of you know the pain of that division. The hurt that goes with that. Jesus continues as he talks about interpreting the time. The work that Jesus uh, invites his followers to join in requires an interpretation of the, the times. And he goes on to talk about signs. Now, as you go on your road trip, there's signs all around. And sometimes they're really easy to understand. Like when the sign says 110... We're pretty clear on what that means. Sometimes they're a bit more challenging. So I'll give you some examples. When I'm riding along on my motorcycle, which is how I do most of my traveling around Australia, and I come across a sign when I'm on my motorcycle that says, Form Three Lanes, my first thought is, that's really difficult for me to do. Okay? I can affect what lane I'm in, but Form Three Lanes... Here's one that gets me every time. When you come back from Newcastle via Singleton, you go across this bridge and it says, for Sydney, use both lanes. Now, how do they expect me to do that? Again, I'm on a motorcycle. And and this one, and I read it this way, and the person I read it to said, what do you think that means? Falling rocks do not stop. (laughs) What would Newton make of that one? Sometimes signs are really plain. Sometimes they're a little bit obscure. Sometimes there's uh, some space in between. Jesus is talking about those things which they should have understood is what he's implying. Now, sometimes different signs apply to different vehicles. So, for example, when there's a bus lane and I'm on my motorcycle, I'm allowed to go in the bus lane. Uh, So, you know, I know that. I know the law on that one. And so I know where that applies and where it doesn't. Uh, As you go north on the M1, you'll come to a place where there's specific stuff, uh, signs that apply specifically to trucks, to to lorries, big vehicles, and then there are the ones that apply to cars. And you need to know which ones apply to you. And Jesus is saying, look, you're good at reading the signs. Here's what he says. When you see a cloud rise in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain. And it does, because you know what's going on in the heavens. And when the south wind 
wind blows, you say it's going to be hot. You know, in that part of the world, as the, sun, uh, the wind comes up from the south, you know it's going to be warm, and the temperature can change just like that in that part of the world. We had a 14-degree uh, drop the other day. Well, having a 20-degree increase in this part of the world wouldn't be that uncommon. In other words, you better know how to read the signs when it comes to these things in Jesus' day. And he's saying, and you do. You understand how those things work. And I would say we're doing it all, always getting better and in interpreting the things around us, the uh, uh, meteorological phenomena, and all these things. But Jesus says, verse 56, hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? So you get these meteorological phenomena just fine, but there's something going on around you that is so huge, so amazing, so grand and glorious... And your eyes are blind to it. And when he calls them hypocrites, I think this removes it from their ability to understand. He's got to be saying, you refuse to understand. Jesus has come and done, done amazing things. Jesus has pronounced forgiveness of sin, and they denounce him for it. He pronounces forgiveness of sins, and they attack him for it. This is a question of the will, and Jesus describes them as hypocrites. The main point here becomes clear in the next paragraph. Verse 57, why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? Our attitude is we shouldn't judge. The the Bible keeps saying, you need to judge. Judge what is right. As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge. Should I be saying your adversary? Will drag you off to the judge. The judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, in this chapter... If we were to look at the way judgment appears and the way judgment works out, we would know that God is the magistrate. God is the judge. And the issue right through is, I can describe it this way, spiritual indebtedness. What do you owe? To whom do you owe it? Now these people that Jesus is talking to, well, now verse 54 says he's saying this to the crowd, they thought that they'd be right. They've made a serious decision to follow God. Who's more serious than a Pharisee? They were serious about following God. They were serious about doing the right thing. But what they don't understand is the nature of their debt. So Jesus offers this parable. And like the preceding verses, again, it's about judgment and reconciliation. As I say, it's God who is judge, and there's a judgment coming. And Jesus says you should sort things out before you get to prison. In other words, what he's saying is, look, the time is short, or it's at least finite, and you want to get this all sorted out before you get to prison. What's the problem with prison? Well, in debtor's prison in the first century world, you don't get out until you pay back every little, and he uses a reference to the smallest coin that the mint produces, You're going to pay right down to your lunch money, to your pocket change, before you get out. And guess what you can't do? You can't go and earn money when you're in prison. The British kind of revised the debtor prison system because they saw the flaw in that. But in the first century world, you didn't get out until you paid the debt. But you can't pay the debt because you can't get out. In other words, you're never getting out. 
And so what did they do in the first century world to help get the money? Well, they would beat you. They would abuse you so that hopefully somebody cared enough about you on the outside that they would go to work and scrape together what they could so that they could buy you out. But Jesus' point is, look, you're not getting out. So what do you do? Make peace with the judge before you get put in prison. Deal with the judgment that's coming before you face the consequences. And Jesus is saying, look, you're really good at interpreting the sky, but here's the issue that stands right in front of you, your spiritual indebtedness. You owe God, and you think you're going to pay that off by tithing your mint and dill and cumin and by doing this and that. Jesus is saying, you just don't get what God is looking for if that's what you think. And as I say, every Pharisee in the, in the caravan moving to Jerusalem for the Passover can say, look, I've made a conscious decision to follow God. I'm living the right life. I'm doing what he asked me to do. And Jesus is saying, there's judgment coming on you. And maybe that's a word for us too. Do we understand the nature of judgment and what God is calling us in Christ to do in response to that judgment? There's a reconciliation that needs to take place. The third thing that Jesus talks about is, well, it's headed in the NIV, repent or perish. And that's not too bad. The work of Jesus calls his followers to repent or perish. If the issue is judgment, then maybe some of the disasters going on around us are an expression of that judgment. Jesus is saying judgment, judgment, judgment. And... Well, so some people, as I said before, stick their head into the combi and they say, Hey, did you hear? Did you hear this? Verse 13, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Did you hear about those people whose blood Pilate mixed with the sacrifices? What a horrible disaster. Those people must have been so bad that even when they offered sacrifices, God didn't accept that. In fact, he had them killed. Because they think if something really bad happens to a person, God is judging that person. Do we think that way? Well, not so much. And in fact, the Bible often does say that's not the mathematical formula to apply to when bad things happen to good people. But people in Jesus' day kept thinking in those terms. And here's a, let's say, a political disaster that led to death over their sacrifices. And Jesus says, do you think those Galileans were worse sinners? Do you think because something really bad happened to them that it's because they were all that bad? That they were worse than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And pretty much all these people are Galileans walking to Jerusalem. Do you think these guys, because they're dead, are worse than everybody else in the crowd? It's a pretty pointed question. Verse 3 says, here's the answer. Do you think they're worse? No. I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. All of you stand under God's judgment. And unless you repent, the same fate, perishing, death, destruction, and judgment will fall upon you. Verse 4, Jesus continues, Well, what about those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? There's political disasters, but there's also, let's just call it a natural disaster. Maybe it was poorly built. Maybe the wind was too strong. For whatever reason, this tower fell and it killed people. And they would have said in their spiritual calculation, those people must not have been right with God. God had it in for them. And Jesus says again, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? So the Galileans, all of them are under a cloud. 
And in Jerusalem, all of them are under a cloud. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Stop misreading the signs. When bad things happen, it doesn't mean that they are bad people. Sometimes horrible things happen to really good people, and to read the signs correctly is a far more uh, difficult calculation to make. So Jesus responds by not letting them get away from his primary concern, which is that judgment is coming for everyone, and unless they too repent, they will be condemned. So what's repent mean? NIV uses the word repent. Do we use the word repent? It's literally a turning and going the right way. Uh, have you ever got on the highway and discovered you're going the wrong way? When we were living in England, my dad came to visit. We got on the highway, coming back from this nice old medieval town that we had visited, and we were going south. If we didn't get off this road, soon we were going to be in London. We're going the wrong way. And there were very few entry and exit points. We went about 40 kilometers south before we could get off that highway and start going north back home. We needed to turn and go the right way. And every second going the wrong way brought us farther and farther and farther from our destination. But I think there's something slightly different here because that was a limited access highway. And I think that, well... We've repented, haven't we? We've made that decision to align ourselves with God like the Pharisees had. We're committed to uh, life lived going the right direction. But on the highway we're on, every moment of every day can be a possible wrong turn. And so we need to repent, not once, not twice, but over and over and over, we need to live a life of repentance. We need to turn and go the right way in our relationship with God because we so easily and so often go the wrong direction. So what does repent mean in this context? Well, it means to turn and align yourself with God. And what does that look like? Well, in this context, it means to love God and live for his glory. And the question that I have is, can I love the one who knows everything there is about me, including the darkest secrets of my heart? Can I love the one who is going to stand as my judge one day? Can I give glory to that one? Because that's who Jesus is. How do I align myself and my life with such a person, with such a God? And that means every moment I need to realign and fall in step with Christ. It's like a tree and a patient landowner. There's a time for waiting and seeing, but there's also a time for cutting the tree down. You know, the people around Jesus were often described in terms of a tree. Now they're being given this chance to repent and to align themselves with God, but that chance won't last forever. One day the tree will be chopped down, it says, uh, 
The son of the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. Give it one more chance and I'll dig around it and I'll fertilize it. I will do everything necessary for this tree to thrive and to bear fruit. If it bears fruit next year, fine. Well, fine's not a very strong word, is it? Fantastic. If it bears fruit next year, fantastic. Do we bear the fruit of repentance? If not, last words of this section, if not, then cut it down. How does Israel fare in their response to Jesus? You could say the vine is cut down. How do we fare in our response to Jesus? Do we repent? Do we love the one who will judge us, who knows the realities of our lives, our thoughts, and our hearts? And do we give him glory? So what can we say in conclusion? Well, what exactly is Jesus offering you? Do we think our situation is better because we aren't like those who saw and failed to respond? You know, the Father graciously sent his Son. The Son graciously gave his life so that his people might live. Standing on this side of the cross, we have even less of an excuse than those fellow travelers had in Luke chapter 12. In some ways, the context changes, but Luke is writing to us to tell us that we need to repent or we will perish. And this doesn't mean that we align with the church, this church or any other for that matter, or even that we make a decision to follow God. Everyone in these stories has presumably done that, but it means that we turn our orientation from this world and from self so our life's path aligns with Christ. And I suppose the question behind all this is, if we understand repentance as loving God, what does that mean for our sin? And do we have sins that we love? Maybe even more than we love God. The Bible speaks in those terms and says you need to set those sins aside. In your own power, you can't do that, you say, and you'd be right. So this is a call to faith, to an active faith, to a faith that the Spirit works within us and that the Spirit takes hold of to produce a new person so that we set aside those things which would keep us from God. That type of faith that we're talking about, well, that can cause divisions. That can disrupt even the closest relationships. But only that type of faith can align us with God through Jesus. And now Jesus moves ever closer to Jerusalem and the cross. And there are no light moments in the verses that we're looking at today. There's no casual banter on this road trip. The picture of Jesus as as warm and friendly doesn't fit in this context. He told fellow travelers that they need to make a clear-eyed response of repentance and faith following Jesus. And the truth is, so do we. They needed to get it right with Jesus at that crucial moment in God's plan because judgment is coming. But let's take a step back and be real here. So is the joy of the kingdom. Jesus, we know, endured the cross for the joy set before him, the joy on the other side. And so if this is heavy and serious, it's because there is a kingdom on the other side. Jesus calls us to repent, to turn, to take the way of the kingdom. So will we live for ourselves or will we live for the kingdom that Jesus is establishing for us? Let's pray. 
Father, we pray that you would draw us to the kingdom, that you would draw us to the truth of the gospel, that you would help us understand the moment, this moment, and respond appropriately to it. Please do help us in this regard by your spirit and through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.